When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to. Lots to talk about. Wendy's in the news, oddly enough. And you kind of got to love the fact that, you know, Wendy's in the news for, for here's the reason. Um, surge pricing. <laughs> uh, evidently during an investor call, the CEO of Wendy's, this Kirk Tanner, uh, evidently he, he said the company had plans to spend something like $20 million uh, rolling out digital menu boards uh, so that, you know, you go to the, the to the restaurants and you see a, a digital a digital board, which can be changed at any minute. And that they were going to be testing, uh, what was the quote? We will begin testing more enhanced features like dynamic pricing and day part offering, along with AI-enabled menu changes and suggestive selling. Yeah, yeah, we're... You know, it's 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 a full-bodied experience. <laughs> and and look, you know, I first ran into the whole dynamic pricing thing. It's got to be five, six years ago. Uh, I went to a Pittsburgh Pirates game. I uh, took the kids. We we were in Pittsburgh for a conference, so we said, "Hey, let's go see a Pirates game." It's probably been more than that, more than five years. Uh, but I said, hey, "Let's go to a Pirates game." And that day, it was like five bucks to sit in the cheap seats, which were way out. You know. Way out in the, in the outfield, way, way, way. It's like five bucks. So we, we went and had a great time. The next day we went, figured, hey, might as well go again. Kids love the game, love the. So we get there, and this time, no, no, not five bucks, uh, like 28 bucks. And I'm like, whoa, yesterday, five bucks. Yeah, nobody wanted to come yesterday. Today, people want to come. So we're doing dynamic pricing, and I'm going, wait a second. Uh, the ticket isn't the cost of the ticket all the time. It, it, you, yeah, evidently, you know, when, when, uh, and they've been doing this for a while. This is not new. Uh, when, when more people want something, the price goes up. And look, you see this on the internet all the time. Uh, when you look at, you, know, you can look at a product on a website and go, oh, I'm interested in that. And then you, you click on something else, you go back to it, and it's like 300 bucks more than it was before. They do this because, hey, Maybe they can get you. 
this is basically gotcha pricing or screw you pricing, however you want to frame it. Dynamic, nothing dynamic about this, unless you're the unless you're the CEO looking to line your pockets. Uh, but what Wendy's was going to do is like at lunchtime, I guess, when you know when when there's a surge in in activity, you know, when people want their product, uh, they they're going to jack up the price, you know, you know, and, and I don't understand it. This is where you go. Um, wouldn't this keep people away during your busiest time? And wouldn't this actually crush your busier times? Uh, now, I guess you could, you know, lower the prices in times when when there's nobody there to encourage people to come. I get that. I don't get the, hey, we're going to charge you a little bit more uh, during the dynamic pricing era of, you know. Now, understand, there's been a lot, a lot of, of, of beating up on Wendy's. And I guess they've now stepped back from it. Um, probably, yeah, it's coming. Trust me, just not right now. Uh, and Wendy's is you know, one of the first big ones to come out and say, hey, we're going to try this. And you go, look, and look, you know, in the fast food industry, you just go somewhere else. And that's what would generate. And I got to tell you, I, I would like to have seen them come out with it, to be honest, to see how many people go, well, not going to Wendy's anymore. Let's see what McDonald's has got. And this is where you have competition in the marketplace. If Wendy's were to have done this and, and you know, people were going, wait a second, you know, that, that 99 cent cheeseburger is now a buck 15 or a buck 25. Well, you know, I'm going to go across the street to the McDonald's instead. Now, would that happen? I don't know. Because I think we as consumers have gotten so used to being gouged that meh, we put up with it anyway. Because look, you know, with all the inflation, the greedflation we've seen from corporate America, because understand, Joe Biden didn't do this. Corporate America did this. Corporate America being as consolidated as they are, they did this. But I look at the you know the price of eggs. Uh, I remember when you know eggs are like nine bucks. I go then don't buy them. If nobody bought the eggs, the prices would come down because they'd have to get rid of them. Especially something like that because they're dated. They've got to be sold by a certain certain time. If nobody's buying them. The company's going, uh-oh, we better drop the prices. But boy, the, the, the pushback I got by se- simply saying, don't buy them. Use the power of being a consumer and saying, not going to do it. Um, I would have loved to have seen that experiment. But this is where I come back to this idea that, you know, we've got too many behemoth corporations where competition isn't there. And look, I, I see in the fast food industry, you can you can have other choices. I would love to see more mom and pops. I would love to see local places. In fact, there are a couple here that, in my neck of the woods that we, we hit up when we have the opportunity or when we're going that route. I would love to see more of that. And this is where the idea of breaking up monopolies, of breaking up some of these big behemoths, um, where this, this is really important. Promote that competition that Republicans tell us they love so much. You know, promote the competition because, look, as I said, if you didn't like the dynamic pricing at Wendy's, you know, McDonald's would drop their price a couple of pennies to encourage you to come over there. That's how this free market thing works. Or you just go, I'm going to pack a bag lunch. That's the free market in action. But what about stuff that you don't have a choice over? You look at the fact that, you know, a handful of companies own uh, or control entire industries. So you wonder why prices have gone through the roof. 
And for me, the one thing that I'm thrilled about the Biden administration with is the fact that they're using the Federal Trade Commission to start going after some of this stuff. Stop some of these insane mergers like the Kroger-Albertson one that we'll talk about here in a second. But go after some of these, these start busting some of this stuff up. Bring real competition back. Uh, in, encourage innovation by being a little more competitive. And of course, you know, the greedflation thing is real. This way, you start breaking some of these people up, you start letting them compete against each other, you're going to prevent market manipulation because you're going to have more people going, hey, I, I need, I need. And the other part of this, by breaking some of these up, you also encourage entrepreneurship. I would love to see a small mom and pop, you name it. I would love to see us go back to the days where you knew the person behind the counter who owned the business. Those are the people I want to give my, my dollars to when I need things. Not some corporate board. And look, we've done this before. We've done we've broken up big corporations and the world didn't end. 1911, we broke up Standard Oil. Yeah. And that turned into 34 different companies. And they didn't go bankrupt. Uh, 82, the AT&T breaking up Ma Bell. What we got out of that was superior service and innovation in, in long distance. I mean, stop and think about that for a minute. When I was a kid, long distance was prohibitively expensive. Nobody did it. We had party line telephones. You you say something like, you know, we had party line telephones to someone today. They go, what are you talking about? Was it a party? Uh, did I have to pay $1.99 a minute? No. You pick up the phone, somebody else is there. You think about what when they broke up Microsoft in the early 2000s and Internet Explorer. What did we get then? We got a boom of new search engines. You think about when they broke up IBM in 1956, and then you had all of these companies that were able to compete because IBM agreed to provide their competitors with access to their patents and their technology, which gave people the opportunity to, to do a little bit better. And now technology's exploded. I mean, we can spend, you know, we can spend a lot of time on this going, you know, hey, you know, Alcoa and 45, they they broke that up, filed antitrust legislation, and you you got people to, to, to compete with them. And it was good for consumers. It was good for workers. It just wasn't good for the very wealthy. Because what, what the very wealthy understand is if they can monopolize, if they can have big, giant corporations, they can have, oh, synergy. <laughs> economies of scale, we can get rid of the redundancy. And what all that means is you working people are going to have less jobs. You working people are going to have less, less power to negotiate because, hey, if one or two companies or three companies own all the industry, yeah, there's not many places for you to go. Uh, you're not going to be able to go across the street, which is why I loved the fast food chains who are trying to get people to sign non-compete agreements because, you know, peanut butter and jelly evidently is a proprietary. <laughs> I still can't believe a sandwich shop tried that. Uh, you can't go work for the across the street or anywhere where they make sandwiches. Nowhere. But for me, at the end of the day. What we need to be doing is we need to be using the Federal Trade Commission to do what we need to do, and that is break up some of these big monopolies and go after some of these big companies. And again, if we're going to be a free market economy, uh, you got to have choice, absolutely, and you got to have the freedom to walk away. Seems simple to me. I want to hear your thoughts, though. Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Quick break. Right back.
We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So we talked about the uh, the Federal Trade Commission and their lawsuit on Monday to block the $24.6 billion acquisition uh, by Kroger of Albertson, uh, which would create a behemoth uh, you know, corporation. And the argument is, well, we got to compete with Walmart. Uh, but what would it do to local communities? What's going to do to the workforce? Uh, as you know, I am not a big fan of monopolies at all. I say we should be breaking up a lot more of these, these especially coming out of the pandemic. Uh, we should be doing a lot more. And this, to me, good start. I'm here to share some thoughts on, well, this this lawsuit and maybe where it takes us. I've asked Morgan, Morgan Harper to come talk with us. She's the Director of Policy and Advocacy with the American Economic Liberties Project. Morgan, thanks for taking time for us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this. So this is kind of, in my view, a big deal because we've kind of gotten used to over the years these mergers going through because, hey, we've got to pander to corporate interests. There's a lot of lobbying money that goes into this. Um, uh, This is kind of a big deal to me. This is a huge deal. And, you know, you said you follow monopolies, trying to break them up. So you probably know that this administration, President Biden, I mean, they have ushered in this whole different approach to how we think about mergers, the harms that they cause to workers, communities, small businesses, us as people who buy stuff. Um, and I think the Kroger Albertson's case in particular just hits on the significance of the change that we see in this administration. So, um, you know, this is this is a case that would not have been possible, I think, uh, without a lot of organizing and then also some of the groundwork that's been laid to be able to have the Federal Trade Commission enforce the law better through things like these merger guidelines that you know Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice put out that forces, or not forces, but says explicitly labor is going to be something and the impacts of labor in mergers is going to be something that we look at directly. No, no, to me, that's an important thing. But, you know, especially coming out of the pandemic and, you know, we'll get to this, but coming out of the pandemic, I think a lot of people you know, are kind of more aware than they were prior to just how consolidated certain inj- many industries are and the yeah. kind of power that they have to, well, gouge us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, Kroger and Albertsons both are, are huge supermarkets. They've been on acquisition sprees for the past 30 years or so, just gobbling up different corporations um, that were also selling food at the retail level. And you're right. I mean, during the pandemic, we saw the risks of having such a concentrated sector in when the supply chain became fragile, they couldn't get all these like huge inventory and, you know, backlog of the products that they cover. And then 
we just didn't have anywhere to go. I mean, at this point, this type of consolidation in the grocery retail sector has also resulted in things like food deserts in certain communities. I know, you know, I'm based here in Columbus, Ohio. There are a lot of neighborhoods where you just, you have to get in a car and go somewhere else uh, to be able to, to get any basic groceries or you're left you know, with a dollar general as your only choice. And so like the overall market here is extremely consolidated. Um, that's, that is allowing these companies and Kroger CEO, you know, said this during the pandemic and as the, the subsequent inflation that came with food prices, inflation's kind of good for us. He said that because it allows us to charge people higher, higher prices and we make more money. Uh, and so, you know, just the, the risks of having this concentration of power can't be underestimated, especially when we're all spending so much more money on food lately. Well, let me ask you, the, the big argument to allow this merger to happen is, is, and it's the only one that's out there that I can see, is that, well, we have, Kroger has to. In order to compete with, with the behemoth Walmart, they just have to continue to grow or they're going to die on the vine because Walmart is so big. Um, now, yeah. I took the position of, well, instead of allowing another behemoth to grow, maybe we should be looking at, you know, breaking up the old behemoth. Right. Yeah. I mean, you you have a you have a whole a movement that agrees with you, Rick. So take take comfort in that. And, you know, this argument, you're exactly right. I mean, this is something we're hearing in Kroger Albertsons, but we, we hear this argument lodged in a lot of different market areas. Like take, for example, you know, the JetBlue Spirit merger that just happened, the argument for that or the that was blocked successfully. But the argument the companies were making is like, oh, you know, the Deltas, the Americans, like we got to get bigger to compete. And it's just BS. <laughs> it never works. They make a lot of promises about how it's going to be better for everybody when they do this. They don't compete any better. They lay people off. Um, and especially in this grocery sector, that's what's so interesting, too. And, you know, the FTC's complaint gets into this is we don't even have to imagine in the grocery sector how you know ridiculous that argument is. We have a, a pretty clear example from just a few years ago when Safeway and Albertsons merge and they claim, you know, that this wasn't going to harm anybody or any workers. We'll talk to some UFCW local members about whether or not there are any harms from that merger. And they will tell you a very different story here. And so, you know, the main counterpoint to that that I I would point us to, and this also is in the the, um, the FTC's complaint, is that these companies want us to always think about them at the national levels. Like, yeah, we've got Walmart, we've got Costco, we've got and Kroger, this little Kroger out here trying to, to do our best to keep up. But the reality is, how do most of us shop for groceries? We shop in a very small mile radius, typically, for where we're trying to get food. And that is the relevant market area. And when you look at it from that level, not just this, this national level, when you look at it at the local level, which is reality of how people are looking for groceries, well, the areas, the markets, the supermarket uh, uh, areas where Kroger's, Kroger and Albertsons currently exist, they are in fierce competition with one another. They are playing off of each other for promotions. They are looking at the quality of each other's products. And so there is a competitive market at that level. And that would definitely go away if this merger were, would be allowed to go through. And I've made the argument that you, know, you go to a lot of a lot of a lot of places and they're competing in a lot of the same marketplaces, the same markets. Yeah. And by taking that competition away, you now have, you know, just one one choice, but two two separate places. Yes. Uh, but, you know, there's there's one there's one choice. And that's not real competition that and I would argue not even real choice. No, exactly. It's not real choice. It's not real competition. In addition to you know all the, the 
the fewer choices as consumers is like the impact on on workers here. I mean, Kroger's and Albertsons are among the largest employers of unionized labor in the grocery retail sector. And being able to play them off of each other allows for union members to be in a stronger position when it comes to collective bargaining. If they become one, there's only one game in town for a lot of these local geographic markets, and you just have to take it, which is exactly what Kroger wants. But that is not what is in the best interest of folks who are working at their stores and a, and a lot of UFCW members, which is why we saw, I mean, and, and this is the other, the other thing I, I want to point out is like, we saw, you know, when, after the announcement of this case being filed, strong support from the UFCW international teamsters came out in support of what the FTC is doing. So it's like, who are we going to listen to about what's best for workers, the workers themselves or the boss? No, I'm right there with you. But, you know, for me, and, and maybe you've got a better sense of this than I do, but whenever these mergers happen, um, you know, the idea of synergy, and I hate that word, but, you know, synergy and economies of scale and ending redundancy, you know, when I hear those things, I mean, I hear less people working. I mean, I hear families being laid off and jobs being lost. Uh, is that a big concern if this merger were to go through, through in your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And that has been the argument for a lot of these mergers over the last 40 years is efficiency and, and synergy, like all this corporate yeah, jargon. All, all that, all that and, corporate speak, yeah. Yeah, all the corporate speak, the the economists, you know, they're the people that uh, claim to understand perfectly how markets work. And it's like, well, you know, newsflash, you don't need to be an expert to understand how markets are working because we live it every day. And we have seen from these mergers, especially in the grocery retail sector, is that there are not greater efficiencies. Prices go up you see that workers are not earning as much and or they get they're getting laid off and and so we have to really push back on these narratives and in fact you know today on CNBC uh, which is you know a channel covering a lot of business news the CEO of Kroger was on and he got grilled by a CNBC reporter these are not people that I would think would always describe themselves as anti-monopolists let's say uh, he got grilled about that exact word synergy, like pushing through the, the BS of this and forcing him to admit, which actually like some of the complaints are also saying both, you know, because there was some state cases that were filed and the FTC case citing that the company themselves is admitting these stores are not are not going to last if they merge. And we already know, you know what the impacts of that are that uh, we've already been discussing on consumers and, and workers. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it comes down to, you know, finally using what laws we have, you know, and I would argue probably our laws are too weak already. Um, but looking at what the, the FTC is doing, um, you know, legislatively, shouldn't we be looking at doing more? Because as I said, coming out of the pandemic, mm -hmm. a lot of us, you know, became keenly aware of where our food comes from, where our supply chains are, you know, all of this stuff and just how consolidated things are. And there's an appetite, I think, right now of people going, hey, maybe we should be breaking some of this stuff up. You look at the railroads. I mean, we went from, you know, what, 50 some railroads down to, I think, six or seven now. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a real problem with consolidation. I know corporate America, you know, the profits are sacked or sacked. We've got to pay attention to that. But it, that the competition thing that we were told was the wonder of the free market doesn't seem to be there. Exactly. And and that's why we're seeing in uh, in Congress, for example, like in response to the Kroger Robertson merger, bipartisan, like how many bipartisan things are there right now in this political environment, but Republicans and Democrats that were speaking out saying, hey, this merger is bad news. And, and we applaud you know the FTC for fighting back against it. And it's you're right, it's across all different market areas. There has been a tremendous concentration of economic power over the last several decades. You know, the only thing I would say too, um, in response to something else you mentioned, in terms of the law, 
So, you know, we have great anti-monopoly laws on the books, the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act. These have been around for almost, you know, in some cases over a century, almost a century. And the problem is like the laws didn't change. The people who were meant to enforce them did. And so we have much stronger enforcers right now in this administration, Lena Khan, Jonathan Cantor, uh, and they're starting to really use those, that authority that exists. Now, the next question is going to be, where are the courts going to do? And that's where this, this merger goes from here, because it's now up to a judge in Oregon to decide whether or not they agree with the FTC's analysis that this merger is anti-competitive, going to hurt workers, going to hurt consumers, um, or if they're going to side with Kroger. And, and, all, and, and sometimes, but not always, we have seen some of these really strong cases that we would say are faithful to the, the law and the intent of the law fail because this, these judges are just interpreting it to side with big business. And so really hope that, you know, the judge in this case will do the right thing. And, and you know, and there's also the possibility that Kroger might just abandon the deal altogether because there's kind of seeing the writing on the wall. And look, you know, and the, the public public outcry. But, you know, here's the thing, and this is where, I don't, I don't want to get you in the middle of this, but this is where who you vote for uh, in, in, in presidential elections, this is where this matters. It's who they put into those positions to, to, to enforce our laws and the people who, well, are sitting on those benches deciding. So, you know, for me, come November, this is another one of those important things uh, in my mind. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking to somebody earlier today and they're like, well, what took so long? This was obvious that this was bad for everybody. Like, you know, government's so slow, da, da, da. And but here's the thing, because there's been such a bias against using these laws, like we were just saying, in an aggressive way to protect us, uh, the administrations had to, like, lay the groundwork for this. So like with this FTC case, because it's resting on this theory about labor, like this is the first time in history the FTC has brought a case based on a theory of harm to labor. How is that possible? That's possible because they did those merger guidelines, which is some you know, wonky document that nobody, none of us would really want to spend time and read, to be honest. But you have to have that document that is saying, hey, by the way, how we interpret the law as FTC, we're going to look at the impacts on workers and judges should be considering that too. Uh, and that's what then sets the stage for them to bring the first ever case that's looking at those harms to workers. So, you know, it does always take a little longer than we want, but you're absolutely right. Is like, we've seen a lot of momentum over the last three years to, to reset our economy to really benefit us and not just big business. And, and I hope that we'll be able to continue uh, so, that work for sure. So let me ask you how this is going to play out because, you know, as you're talking, my mind's going, okay, well, you know, this gets to a judge that's going to be more friendly to, to them. Uh, this, you know, even if, even if it does get shot down, uh, you know, we're close to an election. Uh, there's going to be another ahead uh, of the FTC at some point. If, if there's a change in, in administrations, uh, why wouldn't Kroger just say, you know what, we'll hold off, we'll wait off and to see how this election turns out? It's a possibility. And a lot of companies now are kind of, uh, what should I say, like trying their luck, well, pressing their luck, I was like, what's that phrase? Pressing their luck, uh, coming with these like very aggressive transactions and just seeing if they can like wait out for, you know, what might be a potential change in the administration. But part of that is out of FTC, or sorry, out of Kroger's hands a little bit. And so, you know, the first step is going to be okay. This this case is going to this judge in in Oregon. Uh, 
The judge in Oregon will decide whether or not there's going to be a preliminary injunction. That'll take some time, but might not take forever. And then it'll go to the FTC and with their their internal administrative process, they'll decide, you know, whether or not if the judge if the judge agrees with them, then they'll decide if, okay, as an official commission, this is where we're landing and it could go through the appeals process. So, you know, that all very much could take a year or so. But if we continue to see the type of external support um, for blocking this deal that we've already um, we've already witnessed. If we continue to have you know even business reporters that are saying, "Yo, like the FTC's case here is pretty strong. I don't really know what Kroger is thinking." Then the, the what would 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 uh, accelerate all of this is if Kroger just decides this isn't a good use of of money or their stock price starts to go down. We'll just have to monitor all of that. But it's absolutely possible that yeah, they just try to wait out a change in the administration. And again, it, another one is. of these another one of these reasons where I, I think this administration is doing a lot of the right stuff, and this a prime example of it. But Morgan, I appreciate you taking some time for us. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Morgan Harper, Director of Policy and Advocacy there at the American Economic Liberties Project. I want to get your thoughts. Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. For our free speech TV audience, thanks so much for tuning in. For our radio affiliates across the country, quick break. Right back. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com try. Go to shopify.com try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com try. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So the big news yesterday, Mitch McConnell stepping down, uh, gave a speech on the Senate floor I found really kind of interesting. You know, the part where he said, uh, believe me, I know the party, the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. He says, I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. I mean, that really is... I think a really important statement because here's the guy who's been the architect of a lot of bad stuff going, yeah, this is, this is too much for even me to put my name on. Um, or, or, or he knows, look, there's probably going to be a, uh, a blue wave come November. So either way he's ducking out and here to share some thoughts. I got to tell you, interesting timing on the bailing. I uh, here to share some thoughts on this news. I've asked our good friend, Will Bunch to come share some thoughts. Will is the national columnist over at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Will, thanks for taking time for us. Hey, Rick, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. So I look at this and it's interesting timing, you know, and his, his statement, uh, you know, that's what grabbed my attention. You know, I, I know the politics of my party and, and 
you know, misunderstanding politics isn't one of my faults. Uh, that that says a lot to me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's basically sending out an SOS to all the between the lines readers out there to to interpret what he's saying. You know, um, yeah, I mean, he said that. He said that uh, you know the Republican Party is quote changed. You know, I mean, I mean, he's using these oblique terms. It's like uh, you know, unfortunately. John McCain before he passed didn't didn't teach him the uh, eyelid thing to uh, to uh, do SOS with his eyes, but yeah. uh, you know that might have been a good message for McConnell because I I think in a, in a way he was trying to say that and you know I I think in a way he was trying to say that for the country, but I have no sympathy because you know the problems that we're possibly going to encounter are ones that he caused exactly you know? so, and that that's to me yeah. that's the important part of this. All of this goes back to his to his dealings and all of the trouble we're going to we're going to run into very soon are part of his dealings. But I do find it interesting that he bails uh, because, look, if if Biden wins and the Democrats have a good night, he's going to be relegated to a minority leader status. And I'm sure he doesn't want to do that. But if Trump wins um, and he he gains the majority status in the Senate, um there's some ugly yeah, I mean, stuff. Yeah, let me let me talk about that for a second because I, I I just don't think he wants. He knows what he would have to do as a majority leader. Because you know, if let's just say if Trump has a good night and if he wins, I mean it's horrible to to even talk about it. But if Trump wins, he's going to take some people with him. You know, and you know you you've got a lot of danger. Uh, situations for the Democrats in the Senate, including even Maryland, you've got this popular Larry Hogan running, right? So, you know, there's all all these seats the Democrats are defending, and I think they can defend them if it's a good night for Biden, if it's a good night for Democrats. If it's a bad night for Biden, it, you know, uh, McConnell could stick around and be the majority leader, and it's like, well, great, wasn't that his goal? But the thing is, he knows that if he if Trump is the president, and he's the majority leader, and he'd only probably only have, you know, fifty-one or fifty-two votes, just like, just like Chuck Schumer has now. So, you know, uh, you know, in uh, on on November sixth or seventh, you know, the day after the election, President-elect Trump calls him in, and and he says, you know, listen, Mitch, uh, I've got I've got some plans here. Like, I'm gonna I'm gonna make Stephen Miller my uh, uh, Homeland Security Secretary. Uh, or I'm going to, you know, make somebody who's just horrible, my attorney general to go after, to go after my enemies, you know, or, uh, you know, I, I need your help in giving me authority to, to uh, conduct these deportation raids, uh, you know, in neighborhoods, in, in Latino neighborhoods across the country. Um, he knows, he, he knows that he's going to be under he, the next Senate majority leader under a president Trump, um, if this all goes down, heaven forbid, is going to be asked to just do some terrible things. Yeah. And, and, the and history look, will know, not look popular, look fondly on. Right. And, you know, and, 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 you know, talk about reading between the lines, right? I mean, he, he didn't resign today and he didn't resign on, you know, January 2nd, the day before the new Congress comes in. Uh, he said he is resigning in November. Well, why would why would you pick November of all months? Well, you know, you would pick November because 
you don't want to deal with the aftermath of this election. Yeah. I mean, I mean, another thing, obviously, is, you know, heaven forbid again, but what if what if the election results are contested, right? Oh, there's another um, thing. But, you know, the, yeah. the the other part that more my mind went is as as the if if things go the way that that I fear they might. And, you know, Trump wins and the, the Republicans win the Senate. Uh, McConnell is going to have to deal with some of the crazies that are out there, much like, you know, they have to do in the House. So the Senate's always been that kind of upper chamber where where it's not all fire and brim, brimstone all the time. I think you got some folks who are who are running for Senate who, well, they're going to give some of the crazy House members a run. Yeah, I mean, he, he's going to have to. He's going to have to find a place in his Senate for uh, or he would have to find a place in his Senate for, you know, maybe maybe for Senator Carrie Lake, for example, just to name one person who would be crazy and problematic. You know, um, uh, yeah, you're right. That's I mean, he he has seen what life is like for Mike Johnson, you know, the Speaker of the House as, as a majority leader in this environment uh you know and, and mcconnell as much as i dislike him it, you know is a stronger and stronger willed person than mike johnson and wouldn't react to all these situations the same way perhaps but but he sees he sees what it's like to be a majority leader in this new environment uh you know where where trump is the uh, undisputed leader of the party you know he's now he's taken over the rnc i mean he basically is you know i and, and apparently he's got a remarkable hold over the Speaker of the House. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell was one of the last throwbacks. Uh, uh, you know, um, you know he he's held himself out there as somebody who isn't isn't doing Trump's bidding on everything. You know, he did. Uh, you know, he he supported this border compromise, for example, that involved Biden, um, and he you know, is supporting aid for Ukraine, which, you know, apparently, you know, is the big sticking point for, for Mike Johnson uh, and, and for Trump, right? So so um, he just doesn't want to deal with any of this. But, you know, the problem is, you know, look around the world just today. When I say today, I don't mean today metaphorically. I mean, actually, today, Wednesday, February uh, 27th, right? You know, um, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you guys have talked yet on the show about the Supreme Court ruling this afternoon, but, um, you know, this this decision by the Supreme Court to take up Trump's immunity case and delay his federal election interference trial either to, you know, right before the election, which would be crazy, or after the election, you know, Um this is a massive favor that the Supreme Court is doing doing to Donald Trump uh, because they didn't have to handle it this way. Uh, and no doubt the justices who were rammed on to the Supreme Court by um, Mitch McConnell, you know, uh, you know, who who held up a Democratic pick, you know, I mean, you know, I, irony of ironies, that pick was Merrick, Merrick Garland. But but um, um you know, so so over at the Supreme Court, you're seeing uh, you, you're seeing Mitch McConnell's devious handiwork in action. Uh, meanwhile, I mean the fact the fact that Trump is out there winning the Michigan primary with 69 percent of the vote. Remember, 
Donald Trump would not be a candidate in this election if McConnell had used his power in January 2021. Not only, I mean, obviously he's got one vote himself, but uh, is is the is the Senate Republican leader at that time? He he certainly had the power to sway nine or ten other votes to convict Trump. And remember, if Trump had been convicted at that impeachment trial, it surely would have included the provision that he wouldn't be able to run for president again. No, no I and, and we wouldn't be dealing with this. So, you know, so you know, if if you think that a Trump 47 presidency is going to destroy democracy, which I, I certainly do. Um, you know, um, Mitch McConnell is the guy who made it possible for Trump to run. Mitch McConnell is the guy who put these Supreme Court justices in place. Um, it's his it's his bidding. And, you know, it's probably another reason why he wants to get out of the way. You know, he doesn't want he doesn't want to be the guy who's there when people are really coming to terms with what he's done. Yeah, when the, when the when the roosters come home to roost, and and look, I, I I hope I hope I hope I hope we're wrong, uh, but you know Trump yeah, has already told us uh, he is going to pursue a, a a path of vengeance, of retribution, of payback, of all of that. It's not about governing. It's not about people making people's lives better. It's about you know, moving towards, you know, a very authoritarian kind of government that, you know, as I've been saying, uh, I, I don't like heights. Uh, I will never jump out of a window. So if the story that I, I fell out of a fifth floor window happens, I didn't do it by choice. <laughs> yeah. Use, use the, uh, use the fire stairwell and, you know, uh, you, you just stay in the inner parts of the building for, uh, for four years, you know, I so mean, it, you know, absolutely. But, but, th- but think about but think about it, Rick. You know, I mean, um, uh, Trump's number one goal is retribution. I mean, he said it. He said, you know, he said it out loud. I'm your retribution. That's his number one goal is to go after his enemies, um, and he can carry that out as president. But he can only do it if his lackey is the attorney general, right? Because um, you know he he can. He can tell the Justice Department what to do, but they need somebody in that position who will do whatever Trump says. And that means he's going to have to get his people confirmed. And that's where the Senate comes in. You know, the the Senate, the Senate has sole confirmation power. You know, I mean, we we've heard again and again that Trump realized that you know, the reason the reason he's out of office, you know, meaning the reason he wasn't able to do a coup on January 6th, uh, you know, and, and, and do do some of the crazy things he wanted to do, you know, call out troops or, or whatever. He understands now that that didn't happen because there were too many decent, normal people in those positions, you know, like like General Mark Milley, for example, to stop him or. You know, I mean, I mean, William Barr, who was a terrible attorney general, still wasn't so terrible that he would do some of the crazy things Trump asked them to do. Yeah, know? well, I mean, but, at the end of the day, and I don't give these people a lot of credit because, but, you know, the idea of, you know, if when this fails, I'm going to jail. Uh, that's that's still in their mind. These aren't dumb people. 
Um, you know, look, if it were to happen in the future, do I think they make the same decisions? I don't, I don't guarantee that. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, one thing that, one thing that we know for a fact is that the next attorney general is not going to be William Barr. You know, it, you know, it's going to be, you know, one of these like screaming podcasters who, you know, wants to, you know, have have uh, concentration camps for migrants down at the border and, and somebody, you know, somebody who wants to lock up uh, uh, people who have done nothing, you know, uh, Hunter Biden, Hillary Clinton, you know, uh, um, I mean, this is banana republic type stuff, right? You know, uh, locking up people from the opposing party yeah. just because you don't like them. Um, and but Trump wants to do that. He wants to have an attorney general to um, carry that out for him. And so he needs 51 votes in the Senate, I, I assume, unless he's got some some dictator plan to go around that. But um, uh, anyway, Mitch McConnell doesn't want any part of that. So so yeah. so the question now is who does right? Who that was my that was going to be my final question. You know, who? Yeah. You know who's going? Who's going to be the one dumb enough to go? Yeah, I, I want to do that. Uh, the names thrown out right now are uh, Minority Whip John Thune. Uh, you've got the uh, Republican Caucus Chair uh, Barrasso from Wyoming, uh, Cornyn from Texas. Um, do you do you think one of these three, or you, you got a dark no, horse no. on the outside? No, I don't think it's going to be one of those three because I don't think. Like I know Thune has. Um, um, Thune has been somewhat resistant to Trump, um, uh, maybe even more so than McConnell, to be honest. So, uh, I mean, he's out. Or is it Ron I Johnson? Mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if I don't know if Ron Johnson per se, but you know, somebody, uh, you know, maybe Mitch's, maybe Mitch's fellow Kentuckian, Rand Paul. I mean, you know, I mean, it's a complicated situation because I think the people. When you think of the senators who'd be who are there now, at least who are most likely to do Trump's bidding, uh, most most of them I think are pretty unpopular with their colleagues, right? I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, Ted Cruz has shown himself to be a total lackey, but we all know that Ted Cruz is probably probably one of the most despised people on Capitol Hill. So it's not going to be Ted Cruz. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's probably not going to be Rand Paul, although I think. You know, I think Trump's friends in, in, in Moscow would, would love it if Rand Paul was the Senate majority leader. Um, wow. That's a scary but thing. I don't, yeah, I haven't, I haven't looked at, I, you know, I haven't looked at the list of the, uh, the 49 people and gone through the whole list. There's probably, I'm, there's probably somebody on there who's uh, an obvious Trump choice that I'm not thinking about. Well, but, yeah, obviously uh, got to be Tommy Tuberville. Why not have the dumbest guy in the Senate uh, lead it? I, I'm, I'm going, I'm back in Tommy Tuberville. Yeah, coach, you know, Senate Senate majority leader coach. There you, you know. go. There it is. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Oh, would that be, be frightening? Oh, my goodness. Uh, but, Will, as always, I appreciate the thoughts. Uh, good talking to you. I hope I'll see you back here again real soon. Yeah, I'm around. Uh, good to see you, Rick. Good Take to see you as well. Our good friend, Will Bunch, uh, national columnist there at the Philadelphia Inquirer. I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, you, you think? You think Tommy Tuberville? Um, yeah, why not? Why not? If you're going to go, if you're going full off the edge, why not pick Tuberville? He doesn't ever have the seniority, so I doubt it, but you never know. Quick break, right back.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1965. That was the day the Drug and Hospital Employees Union Local 1199 sent a telegram to President Lyndon Baines Johnson. The message declared the union's stand against U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. They were the first union local to take an official stand against the war. However, it should not have surprised anyone that Local 1199 was willing to take such a public stand. From their founding, they have been deeply committed to broad social justice unionism. The union started in 1932 in New York City. In the beginning, their membership was mostly Jewish men working in drugstores. During their first decade, they led pickets for a living wage and against segregation. During the 1950s, they held organizing drives in the city's not-for-profit hospital. This brought many African-American and Latino women into the union. These workers were often paid wages as low as $32 per week and worked extremely long hours. The union helped them win a $100 a week minimum wage. The union had become an important voice for workers in the city's nonprofit hospitals. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called Local 1199 the authentic conscience of the labor movement. The union expanded its organizing beyond New York in 1969. They helped organize a successful strike of hospital workers in Charleston, South Carolina. From there, they launched organizing campaigns of hospital workers in other states. Over the years, the union has stood in solidarity with Cesar Chavez and Dolores Hayorta's efforts to organize farm workers. They opposed apartheid in South Africa. They were also an early opponent of the war in Iraq. Today, the local is affiliated with SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. So some interesting news on the Trump front. Uh, Trump looks like probably going to have to sell off some of his properties to pay the $450 million judgment for the bond uh, just so he can appeal this, uh, because that's that's how it works. Now, he had offered on Wednesday uh, $100 million uh, to pause the 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 four hundred fifty uh, million dollar judgment that he faces, and well, the judge said no. <laughs> uh, you're going to have to come up with the the full amount. That's that's what's going to happen. Uh, and what's interesting, what's interesting is uh, on the same day, the same day, the judge uh, uh, was sent a white powder. Yeah, uh, and forced you know, New York City's emergency response folks uh, to get to the, the courthouse uh, all because some some crazy person decided, oh, I'm going to send white powder to show my protest. I hope they find this person. I'm not allowed to say that uh, what I really hope happens to him, but I hope they hold him accountable. Um, I'd like to see I'd like to see much more because this is the kind of stuff that, that gets people hurt. This is the kind of stuff that gets people killed. Uh, this and these idiots doing this swatting stuff, uh, I, uh, there there should be a there should be something. Uh, also, Alabama, Alabama is in the news as you have uh, the Republicans who lead the state trying to scurry and figure out how they're going to do something with in vitro fertilization, uh, and and trying to figure out how to undo what they have done. Because uh, understand, Democrats are are, are seizing this. The message very clear: uh, women, Republicans hate you, uh, or at least 
your reproductive process. You know, at least that. Uh, I do find it interesting that the the most recent polling on this, uh, the Axios Ipsos poll, finds uh, two thirds of Americans oppose the idea of considering frozen embryos as people. And I'm going, I don't get it. I don't get how it's only two thirds. Sorry, I, I can't imagine that there's a third of the country going. You know, you know that petri dish. There's a person in there. That's a person. Um, it's it's really really twisted. And that if you drop that petri dish, you can then be held accountable for involuntary manslaughter. That that freaky too. Uh, we are in really really. What's that? May you live in interesting times. Uh, it is interesting. And since we're down near Alabama, let's move over to Mississippi. Mississippi did something, and I'm going to give Mississippi credit, the Republicans in the House there. Uh, they passed a bill on Wednesday to expand Medicaid benefits to hundreds of thousands of people in their state. Mississippi is, what, the poorest state? Uh, one of the poorest states. I'm going to go with, I'm going to go top five poorest states in the country. Probably one or two. But one of the poorest states in the country. Uh, this could get, like I said, hundreds of thousands of people access to care. What's interesting, what's interesting is Mississippi has, was it the highest number of people dying because of not, not having access to care than, than any, any country, any state in the country? The highest rate of preventable deaths of any state that that's remarkable. And, and again, comes back down to, well, you know, couldn't get, couldn't get to the doctor, couldn't afford to go to the doctor. Uh, and, and the other part of this that I find really, really amazing is that, you know, it passed 98 to 20. Now, overwhelmingly Mississippi's house is, is, is a Republican led house. And the co one of the Republican sponsors of the bill uh, Representative Missy McGee, uh, she said that you know, lawmakers had a moral imperative to put ideology aside and 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 help you know Mississippi's poor, help the poor health uh, health outcomes that are happening in their state, and you know bring money in is the, the part that gets me. You're bringing all this money in. Now I got to be honest, there was part of me that said, um, we better make sure that this is spent on health care. Because Mississippi has a history of of using money that's supposed to go for one thing for something else, you know, like volleyball courts or or, or Brett Favre. Uh, so maybe you know, don't give them the money without some strings that you actually have to use it for what you have to use it for. Just throw it out. Now I, I'm probably gonna get a letter that I'm being sued by Brett Favre for bringing up the fact that he got a bunch of TANF money uh, from Mississippi. But hey, so be it. Uh, but this is a big deal on, on another front, and that is that a Republican state potentially could, and one of the one of the most anti-Obamacare states in the country, is moving towards passing Obamacare. Now, their governor Tate Reeves has has been evidently against it. Uh, it it'll be interesting to see if he. If he does the veto thing, but in the House, when you have a 98 to 20, that's that's beyond that's veto proof. That's the ability to go. No, I think we're going to we're going to we're going to push this through anyway. But I got to tell you, it's a 
this is a, this could be a big deal for the people of Mississippi. This could be an opportunity for for people who who haven't had now this 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 is going to cost uh, the federal government a, a good bit of money. But we want to make sure that every citizen in this country has access to good quality care, has access to seeing a doctor and preventative care. And if we were to do that, maybe, maybe some of the costs would start coming down. Now, for me, this could be a good moment. And that that is if we had a functional federal uh, legislative, legislative branch, if Congress didn't have its head so far up its behind, we might be able to fix some of the things that people complain about, about the ACA. We might be able to, you know, legislate some fixes to ensure that the costs, costs come down, that uh, people get to see doc- the doctors that they want, a whole bunch of stuff. We could do, we could do a lot of things. The question is, will we? Uh, could this be that moment where Mississippi steps forward and says, you know what, we, we need this. Now, I don't know what the Senate's going to do. Uh, and and I, I, again, I'm hoping for a, a big, big victory, 98 to 20, pretty big. Uh, if you, I'd like to see something like that in the Senate. But on, on, the, on the national level, does this become a moment where we start going, yeah, we're going to do like we did with, Medi- with Medicare. We're going to start making it better. We're going to start fixing the problems that are with it instead of just having people who are heads in the sand repeal and replace. Don't know what we're going to replace it with, but we're going to repeal that dang, that dang darn, that that Obamacare. We're going to get rid of it. This is a big deal. At least I think it is. I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, Mississippi expanding Medicaid. Wow. Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Miss any portion of the program? Make sure you grab the podcast. Wherever you get your favorite podcast, you'll find ours. And as always, thanks so much for being here. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email rick at rick at thericksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk.